Hello everybody, I'm Nathan. And I'm Anita. And welcome to the Homeschool Project Podcast, where we discuss the ups, the downs, and everything in between on this homeschooling journey. Hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Homeschool Project Podcast. We hope everyone is doing excellent out there. Today we have Nikki Farrell, one of the owners of the Wildings Forest School, as well as the host of the Wildings Podcast. This conversation was a ton of fun. The Wildings Forest School is located in Queensland, Australia, and it's where dirt gets put back into childhood. Nikki explains her philosophy, her past life as a public educator, and how the outdoors can help heal our children. We hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. So get comfortable and join us as we travel to the other side of the globe. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Really well. It's a beautiful day here in sunny old Queensland. Good. So we ha- we realized we had some issues, and I know we apologized before we started, but we just wanted to say sorry again for uh, the issues. So it is oh. Tuesday, seven p.m. in the in the uh, East Coast time, United States. Mm-hmm. It is currently nine a.m. Queensland time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on, we- on Wednesday. On Wednesday, it's a beautiful quote unquote winter's day, and it's it's warm. I should be in my shorts and a singlet. <laughs> So I wanted to, I, I've been telling my wife this, I wanted to ask you something since this mm-hmm. is the case. What is the future like? <laughs> it's pretty exciting. It's, well, no, yeah. just hoverboards, no cars, hoverboards. Yeah. You know, the pol- politics aren't looking good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> here, here as well, don't worry. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Once I realized that we were going to be talking to you, I thought, wow, it's like uh, she's a time traveler compared to us. She's in the future, I have to ask. so It's hard to be born like this, but you know, someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the future season. I mean, she's all the way in winter already. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think climate change is here today. It's, it's really warm. <laughs> I'm sweating down here in the, my my family's basement so, so i'm literally sweating in their house so it's warm here uh, love it. for our listeners we are currently on vacation recording this episode mm. so yes we are in our family's basement in rhode island yes. yeah. um, what are you doing working on your holiday on your vacation this, this is fun work. for us yeah yeah I'm, we're the same we're exactly the same yeah plus while we if we do this we get uh babysitters <laughs> Nice. It works out, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so this podcast is going for six hours. <laughs> if you're if you're up for, it, you can just you can just walk away, leave the the just camera, leave the camera on. on. Talking. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I might do the same. <laughs> so, in, what we want to start off is just you introduce yourself, tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about your background and what it is you do. Sure. So uh, I'm one of two directors and founders of Wildlings Forest School, which is a little outdoor recreation program essentially on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. My business partner, Vicky Oliver, and I started three and a half years ago. Uh, We're both teachers and we didn't know each other. I went to her nature play group with my two young boys and I just loved it. And we just hit it off and had really similar philosophies around education. Um, At that point, we were still looking at schooling because we were teachers and that's just what you do. And uh, But we were both considering um, taking a break, well, you know, start delaying the first year of school for our eldest children for vastly different reasons for both of our children. But it was 
it was suddenly just really nice to have this partner in crime to go, oh, what if we did this and how about this and is delaying the right thing for our child and just having someone to talk that over with. Um, so, and my husband was on board already, thank goodness, because I know many of my homeschool friends, that's the hardest part is getting the husbands and partners on board. Um, and so we just took the leap and we started a homeschool or well, home kindy program with just a couple of friends, which was just the kids playing. And then we started a homeschool co-op. We'd never been to a co-op before. Like, we can do this. We'll just start a co-op. That's what people do, right? Right, why not? Um, And we were trying to get the children to sit down at between four and six years of age to do maths and English, a little bit of art, but we were right next to a gymnasium. So (laughs) there were all these uh, wrestling mats right next to our classrooms, essentially, and the children would just gravitate and they would just play and it was really hard to bring them back Mm -hmm. and the noise levels were off the charts and it was doing my head in, frankly. (laughs) So we, at the end of the day, would take them down to this creek behind where we were running the co-op and the mood, the children would just, they would just relax and the noise would go down and they were just learning the things that we were trying to teach naturally down at the creek and we went, huh. The clog, cog started ticking and we started, we went to do a forest school leaders course and it all just clicked. We went, right, this is it. Our past careers and lifetimes have all come to this one thing and here we are three years later. We run playgroup, kindy, holiday programs, excursions and workshops for educators as well. We're really busy. <laughs> Can you yeah. explain what a forest school is? Oh, good one. Okay, so forest school comes from a Scandinavian philosophy which essentially comes from the term frillusliv, which means to return home. You get all hippie on us, we're, you know, we're as animals and we need sunlight, water, fresh air, love, uh, and that's what we need to thrive and a bit of movement. So as a teacher, uh, uh, both of us were seeing, we're both high school teachers, my husband's an ex-teacher as well, um yeah yeah three ex-teachers we know a lot of teachers a lot of teachers homeschooling (laughs) um it's probably one of the biggest myths I would love to bust about homeschooling is that you need to be a teacher to homeschool your children I just think that's the biggest myth that needs to be busted so quickly um your parents know their children best it's really hard to get to know a child wholly and fully in a classroom of 25 to 28 children, when particularly in high school, we only see children for three hours a week. So it takes a long time to build that rapport and that relationship with a teenager. And, and with teenagers especially, that's how you earn that respect is time and, and relationships. So, yeah, we were seeing a lot of uh, mental health issues, anxiety and depression. My last cohort of children, we had well, children, they were teenagers. Some of them had beards, you know. <laughs> But they, I had 18 children in my class and six of them were diagnosed with uh, anxiety or depression and I would have diagnosed another three. And I just thought it's not okay and it's not just the school system, I know that. There's a lot of other things. It's cotton wooling of children. It's the overprotection of children. Um, but we just thought some, we need something else. There needs to be either an addition or more push for outdoor learning and less pressure on the academics at school. So we discovered Forest School and Forest School is essentially regular outdoor learning that focuses on the holistic well-being of a child. So it's not just academics. It's a real focus on how are you mentally? How are you spiritually? You know, how do we raise a, a whole being rather than just this focus on getting to college, university and 
getting a good job and working nine to five until you retire. That's where we started. <laughs> when you were talking about how you guys were teachers and then you went to a force school training, what did that consist mm. of? So we don't have yet, or saying that, it's changing now, but three years ago when we were looking into this, no one in Australia was running forest school training. So there was a company called Forest School Learning Initiative that come from the UK. They come all the way over to Australia and they run five-day programs. So as part of that training, it's uh, how to teach children to use fire safely and manage and extinguish fires, whittling with pocket knives, um, use of hand tools, so hand saws, bow saws, hammers, hand drills and those kind of things, um, ropes, knots and shelters. We do raft building as well. And then how to risk assess that and teach children how to risk assess themselves because what we're finding is, as parents and teachers is that children are micromanaged to the nth degree and so they don't get a lot of chances to make their own decisions and they don't get a lot of autonomy in their life at all because there's no free play anymore, not no free play. In general, there's been a decline of... 50% since the 80s in children's free play. So the structured play, you know, the soccer and gymnastics and all of those fun things, but children don't get that time to sit and process the day and be creative and use their imagination. So Forest School embodies that idea that it's child-led and emergent uh, education. So we might provide two activities. So, for example, it's fire season for us. So uh Tomorrow when I run Bush Kindy, we'll be running, uh, we'll be making bananas wrapped in alfoil with chocolate and marshmallows and put them on the fire. And the children will start the fire with fire strikers and look after it and maintain it and they'll do the cooking. And then we'll have one other activity. But at no stage are they forced to do any of that. And what we often find is whatever activity we put out, they go, meh, thanks. I'll take those resources and I'll come up with something far better over here away from adult eyes. So we really find that we're just providing the space, the time, the resources and the guides. We don't call ourselves teachers. We're, we're mentors if they want us there. I mean, we're there, but if they want our help, only if they ask. So our job is to be an observer and to provide invitations and provocations that might extend their learning. But at no point do we say, right, Nathan, you need to come and sit down here and you need to strike for the next 15 minutes. And Anita, you need to come and make that banana now. Right. If you'd like to dip into it, that's great. And if you don't, there's 30 other children and the learning that goes on beyond the activities that we set is far more powerful than the activities that we actually set out each week. Where was this when I was a kid? Because <laughs> oh, no. I, could have really, I could have really used it. <laughs> there's a lot of us homeschooling parents that are like, quite like autonomy and freedom. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was yeah. not a fan of school. I love learning, but yeah. I I always remembered hating going to school. And I was a good, I was a good student, but I didn't like mm. being there. Um, now, how would you say your philosophy has changed coming mm. from uh, being a teacher in a uh, you know public school to mm. doing this? There's been a huge and and powerful de-schooling, huge amount of de-schooling. So, but prior to having children. My kids would have gone to daycare, they would have gone to school, they would have gone to, well, I wouldn't mind whether it was, um, I don't know what you call community college, TAFE here to college or university, mm. and that would have been the pathway as long as they were happy, you know. Right. Um, but what we've since decided is that we want our children to not just be fine, we want them to thrive. And 
I don't think I, I was a good student. I, I think you nailed it when most of us love learning. Most of us don't love to be told what to learn, when to learn and how to learn it. I think that's the big difference. So I've gone from being a teacher that was very happy getting up in front of a classroom and teaching at children and marking and it was, you know, it was the marking that ended up, ended teaching for me. The constant, the feedback from the teenagers saying, Miss, I want to be a motorbike mechanic. Why can't, why do I have to read Shakespeare? Why can't I read something else and still do the same assessment? And me as a teacher going, I don't know. Why can't we do that? That would be great. (laughs) well because we have to moderate and I'm being moderated and my my job is to put this one assessment out so that the district can moderate this one assessment so that people can go to university even though 25% of children only 25% of our teenagers are going on to college so why is the whole the whole school system strained to push these kids into college when 75% of them aren't going that way and then feel like failures because they didn't get to college so yeah, so I went from that to having my own children and going, oh, they really, they really learn without someone needing to teach them, you know, and taught them how to walk or talk or, you know, started counting. I haven't taught him how to count. What's, what's going on? And then um, just taking, not doing the daycare route, I just got to spend more time with the children and, and really saw how they thrived when they were able to choose what they were learning and then, yeah, getting to forest school. And now I'm, we're we're total unschooling family. We do no sit-down curriculum. We do no workbooks. Um, we're mainly outdoors, wild schooling and forest schooling. We're, we're real life, well, just life experience. We're just letting them live their lives how they want to live their lives. Feels like a bit of an experiment sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be curious to see what my teenagers think of this in 10 years' time, but... They're happy and they're healthy and they're socialised. Don't get me started on that. Um, they're healthy and happy children. And when we ask them if they'd like to school, they say, I don't want to sit at a desk. I don't know where they've heard that from. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, on a day like this, it's I've got to work out the conversion rate, but it's 29 degrees here Celsius. It's There's no wind. It's a blue sky day. As soon as we finish here, we're off to the beach. And I just think those teenage boys I used to teach when I took them out, if they'd get into the, after lunch, they'd get into the classroom and they were just wired up, you know. They, you could see them. We call it bajiggity. They're all bajiggity. <laughs> you know, they've got energy they need to get out. And so if I took them out for a quick kick of the football for, you know, five, ten minutes, we could get them back in the classroom. And I just thought, you know, we're animals. With these teenagers, they need to move. And if they don't move, it's going to come out in another way. And it does. Mm. You know, it comes out in rage and anger and you know and um, anger at the school system so yeah basically from schooling to unschooling we've just completely changed and love it yeah it's an awesome transition so were you this type of person before you started the forest school and I mean uh did you know did you know how to build rafts and bow and arrows (laughs) good question um, I did grow up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, so okay. I graduated with three other children, uh, teenagers at my school, so we were a tiny, tiny school. Wow. 
yeah, and my, you know, I played netball with my English teacher and we were good friends with my home ec teacher. So it was a tiny community. And I'd turn up to netball and Miss Madden would say, oh, I hope you've done your homework because otherwise I'll talk to your mother. So it was a beautiful village. um, And I grew up on a farm. It was fairly free range because there was nothing else to do. So we learned to drive by the time we were 10 and shoot by the time we were 10. But we had no water, so we didn't know how to raft build. We never really made bow and arrows like we did. It's really come from the children. So we'd get to kindy and children would start saying, I want to make a bow and arrow. And we're like, okay, oh, okay, let's have a go. And we, it, it's all been experimentation. So one of the biggest things we have at Forest School is that we're all scientists and failing is how you succeed. You do not ever succeed without failing over and over and over again. You know, we use the iPhone you know, no one calls the iPhone 12 or the iPhone 1 a failure. It was just progression. That's it's how we get better. Um, so, no. No, I didn't know how to build a raft. I didn't know how to make a bow and arrow. I didn't know how to light fire and manage fire because we used to camp a lot as children. I was really lucky that my parents took us camping every school holidays, just about, um, and we had free-range summer holidays at a beach. We would just go camping down at the beach. But, um it's, I've learned more in three years from the children and the children asking questions than I've learned in any of the courses that I've done. That's like one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around mm. is that you did go from this very traditional schooling and that's all you knew, that was your career, and then an unschooler. And I, as we are starting to like learn more about the different methods and homeschooling and then even researching for this episode, we had so much fun reading all about unschooling and forest school and wild schooling that Mm. I felt like we were even starting to fall in love with the whole philosophy ourselves. Mm. And right now we do more of a Charlotte Mason style. And I'm like trying to find ways that I'll, you know, slowly break loose of that. And I'm wanting to break loose of that and be more free So Mm -hmm. for you that went from very traditional to unschooling, has Mm -hmm. it been not just that you did this leadership training, but like how, I I can only imagine like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a constant thing that you're working on to unlearn certain ways. Like you said, Mm. so what has helped you? Has it been like research or trainings or you just go as you, you know, every day you just go with it or. I think part of it probably, it has helped being a teacher. It's helped me to see how boring the curriculum is, how loaded the curriculum is, how overburdened teachers and students are. And then remembering like, how much have you retained from your schooling? Mm -hmm. How much have I retained from my schooling? (laughs) You know, so I can teach my children to think critically without having to bore them with things that aren't relevant to them and I'm not saying that there's not a lot of really important things in the curriculum there are you know particularly about social justice for me if if my children learn nothing but to be kind and empathetic and good human beings and not racist and and not homophobic then I consider my job done everything else I know that if they want to learn it they can learn it um so there are some really great things in the curriculum but I think we forget I think it was John Taylor Gatto that says if school started at two, then parents would assume that teachers had to teach their children to walk and talk because we assume because children go to school at five that teachers have to teach their children to read and teach their children to write when it's not the case. So 
For me, it's been a lot of research. So my favourite book is Free to Learn by Peter Gray and he just talks about... <laughs> he just talks about the... Yes, yes, there it is. <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of reading it together. <laughs> and, and I haven't read it in a while, but that was the book that I went... That was my aha moment. Right. That was me going... Ah, children were raised in villages. Children were raised by mentors. Children chose who their mentors were and they learned from other children. And I think that's the other thing about school is that we segregate children by age and we do them a great disservice by doing that because I, I still learn from older and younger mentors and sometimes I'm a leader in a group and sometimes I'm learning from the leaders in a group. And that's really powerful to be in all of those positions. Whereas if you're a leader in your classroom for... 12 years, that's great. But what if you're not a leader in that classroom of those same children for 12 years? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it can be really disempowering. Um, and, and again, it's not realistic. It's not real world learning because at school I'm with 20 other children the same age and right now, and I know at school at lockdown, some of our schools aren't able to mingle even in the playground. So they're only hanging out with children of their exact same age. Mm-hmm. I think particularly with teenagers, um, they can be really great role models and really, and it can be really empowering and we can set our teenagers up to be better role models if there are people for them to learn from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, there was a whole, there was a lot of things, but reading, a lot of reading, a lot of unschooling blogs. Uh, we've got a couple of really great local women here that we follow. Um, Happiness is Here blog and Rachis do really great ones. Uh, we follow Lulu Lastic and the Hippie Shake in New Zealand. There's some really great unschooling blogs where I've just met, I've seen their children and I've seen happy children. And I think they might not be lawyers and doctors, but is that our, is that our only vision of success? And right. when I speak to my lawyer friends and doctor friends, are they are they happy? What and if they are, that's great for them. But I know I wouldn't be I wouldn't be happy. I would not be a happy lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I know what I need to be happy, and that's fresh air, sunshine, movement, and a, a happier work environment, a happier work culture. So, and sleep. I wouldn't be a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if I can do nothing else but enable my children to explore and find out and find their true sense of identity far earlier than I did. I spent my 20s finding that rather than my early youth. You know, I feel like I didn't waste my 20s, but it's taken me this full circle to get to here to go, you know, yes, I want to teach, but I don't want to teach in that system. I can still be a great teacher, but just not in that system. Yeah. Yeah. I love the interview you guys did with the Nature School, your episode Mm. of Nature School. And uh, one of the things that she had mentioned was how even she, who is very passionate in her philosophy, will find her mind drifting to more of that traditional educator way of thinking and doing something just because it's always been done that way. And then she said that she'll like stop and then ask herself, well, why does it have to be this way? And I just thought that that Mm. was like so true. Like, we do need to keep asking ourselves why when you're in this mm. like unlearning state, if you're trying to let go of what you've always grown up around thinking that that is the right way, but why, mm. like what makes it, you know, 
right. And I, I just, yeah. I remember listening to that episode and I was like, she's, she's so spot on with that. And that's like the, the struggle that I have right now. I'll come mm-hmm. home and I'll talk to him and our, um, our middle child who's six, he's not going to do well with tradition. I mean, we don't do traditional so much, but even mm-hmm. more so I, we're just learning about him that he is even more so where he just needs to be like free. And, and I, that is something that I am trying, like I told you to let go of and finding ways on how I can do that because I want it so bad. And it's like, I'm fighting everything I've ever known to just like, let go of it. So I just wanted to bring that point up. She said, that just reminded me, this is a great book too on that. So they unschool their two boys. And that was exactly that. They had one child that needed to be really free <laughs> and that's same with us we've got um one that would have done fine would have been yes. would have got yeah, that's our oldest. fine yes. yeah same yeah <laughs> those second ones just come and test their parenting don't they <laughs> like you think you've got this parenting now well i'm going to send you number two <laughs> but um go ahead, no, think, go ahead finish. Well, I think, you know, the school system's only 150-odd years old, so the traditional school system, and it was made to create factory workers, and that's not what we need anymore. You know, that's all automated, and if it's not, it will soon be. So in this global economy, like we're moving to a gig economy, a freelance economy, so why wouldn't we help our children really find out who they are and what they love so that they can become those freelancers worldwide in a, in a job and a career in the interests that they love. So I think the hardest thing is the comparison. I find it easy now because we don't have, we, we've got friends at school, but we don't see them all the time. So we see more homeschoolers. So our comparison is overall wellbeing, not, you know, how their report card was or what test they got, what test score they got. Um, but also doing a lot of reading about Sweden and, and Finland and, they don't start teaching reading and writing and well writing especially until they're seven or eight because developmentally that's when they're ready. So when I released that expectation, that's been that has been the best thing for me to go. All right, I'm going to trust my children, which is the hardest thing to do. It is. It really yeah. Is. But I'm going to trust that at some point, because we live in a, li- a world that requires you to be literate, like it really does. Your stop signs, your cars, like the advertising at mcdonald's it doesn't matter you need to be able to read to succeed mm-hmm. that at some point our children will say well, what does that say and that's right. how it started so i've done no formal sit down learning with um, my elder or either of them but with my eldest he loves birds so he um would say what's that bird and what's that bird so i bought this identification book this thick you know written for adults and he just started going well that's a magpie so that must be mag magpie well that's cook 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 is that kookaburra so he literally taught himself to read from the australian field guide to birds that is awesome. <laughs> yeah and and from stop signs he said well that is that a stop sign mums yes that's a stop sign so that says stop yes st stop stop so i say that we haven't taught but you know my grand my parents and friends will we spell things out naturally. So, you know, we hand them the milk and he'll say, is that, is that coke? That's coconut milk. So they've just learned. And now, you know, within, I think within about four weeks, he went from not reading to reading novels. So that just cinched it for me. I was like, right, if he can learn to read without my help, he can do anything without my help. Yeah. So, yeah. 
And my youngest loves math way more than English. So he's counting and counting up in fives and tens and just sits here singing to himself with his times tables. And the most we have is a times table poster on the back of the toilet door. (laughs) That's the extent of our, our math resources here. So... But it's in everyday life. You know, we cook with them and we measure things and we take them shopping and we do budgets and that's... So I say we don't sit down and teach. We don't do workbooks, but we're surrounded by it. It would be really hard not to be able to get through life with basic math and basic English unless you had your head in the sand, I think. See, I think that's a great reminder too because even that right there, I'm like, well, what if I didn't have a math curriculum? Like how how could I teach them but you're right. It, it, mm. And we do already do, you know, we do a lot of cooking and baking and we do mm. already point out all the areas in our life to them where math is. Um, mm. Even like when we're grocery shopping and okay, well, do you have enough money yeah. this much, you know? But again, it's just that thinking that de-schooling, you know, I have to, yeah. have to learn. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge de-schooling. And look, we're, uh, my oldest is only eight, but this has been four years for us, really. And we, I guess we were lucky that we didn't dip into the system first. So I haven't had, you know, I had friends start. So prep is the first year of school here. And it's meant to be a, a play year preparing, prep, preparing you for the first, you know, real school. And I had um, one parent come to me the second week of school. The teachers had their teacher interviews and said, oh, look, she's behind in her reading. That's <laughs> You mean to go to school to learn to read? Like, how can you be behind in reading after two weeks of school? That's like the pressure on our children to to it's be doing these learn. things. No, really? Yeah. Yeah, you can go. <laughs> no, uh, our daughter, when she was going into kindergarten, I was, mm-hmm. we were both still working uh, full time. And she had, bits, because we were both full time workers, we had her in preschool. And she was in a pre-K four program. And mm-hmm. at the end of the school year, we were trying to get her into one of the private schools. Cause in Florida, the public schools where we live weren't that great. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to get them in a private school. And the one that we were looking at sat down and had a meeting with us and said, we, we don't think we can accommodate your child. And we're like, what do you mean? They're like, well, she's not doing very good with her phonics and her letter sounds. So we don't think Mm -hmm. that she'll be able to keep up with the rest of the kindergarten class. And we're like, she's five. What are you talking about? (laughs) The equality. Oh, it makes me rage. I get so ragey. (laughs) Oh, I was, I was pretty upset. And that was really the beginning of this. Mm Mm-hmm of us talking about it and starting to research. I was like, this is crazy. I said, she's a little baby. She's a little, she's a little yeah. kid. And you're telling me she's behind, behind what? <laughs> behind behind, behind what? what? That's this, this is the thing, you know, we've pulled these metrics, not out of look, not out of thin air, but we might as well grade our children by height. That's like the disparity with child development. You know, if kids don't start walking, some of them don't start walking till they're two. Some children don't start start speaking till they're two. But we don't say, oh, you're behind in speaking. Like, off you go to naughty speaking school. Yeah, it's just that. But then we get to school and we suddenly say, well, all five-year-olds must hit this or they're behind. And I, mm-hmm. this is what I want to take that pressure off of my children to 
learn when they're ready to learn yeah. so that they don't hate learning. Because I can tell you right now, by, by year 11 and 12, half of my cohorts hate English or they hate maths. You know, they like what they're good at. But if they've had 12 years of you're behind, you're behind, you suck, this is crap, you know, then it's no wonder we form these hatred of things. But how can you hate something that you use every day? I no longer hate maths. I used to hate maths, but I do use it every day. It's, it's taken me a lot of de-schooling to realise that, hey, this, this is really useful and it is can be fun, but maybe not like that and maybe not being told that if you're not getting A's that you're not good at this. That's how, I, that's how I was with math, yes. I absolutely hated math with a passion. If, <laughs> if math was a person, I'd want to fight it. Same. I would, I would have been there cheering you. <laughs> Get math. <laughs> Take it down. <laughs> what do we need it for? We don't need it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you're right. Once you get out of the syst- that system and you realize that what math you actually use in your job and in, and in life, it mm. becomes fun. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least useful. <laughs> or at least useful. You're right. Which but, yeah. much of math is not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's not. And a lot of mathematicians at, you know, college level will say that unless you're moving on to college level math, then there's no need for it. You know, yes. It, don't get me wrong. The, there are transferable skills, you know, the critical thinking and the problem solving, but you can do that in a myriad of ways that are far more interesting to you. Mm-hmm. So Again, why force it? But uh, yeah, that that child development, it's it doesn't suit the majority. You know, sixty to seventy percent of children, and it doesn't suit our kinesthetic learners. We have a huge array, a huge range of of types of learning, the ways that we learn. And teachers, look, this isn't a teacher bashing because teachers do a great job with what they do and, and the classrooms that they're given and the resources that they're given, but. Yeah. I'm going to genderize here, but many, many boys, they need to work with their hands and they need to see something fail in their hands. The math in that, the problem solving in that, that's how they'll learn and that's how they'll retain that because it's a real life experience. But on a piece of paper, it quite often you don't retain it, particularly if you're working towards a test. You know, the research is all there. If you learn something for a test, if you haven't gone over your notes more than three times in various ways, it's gone. You know, you don't lose it. You don't use it, you lose it. So why are we learning it if we're not going to use it? <laughs> when you figure that out, please tell me. Uh, <laughs> and and I, yes, her entire family are teachers. So we make it yeah, very yeah. clear that this is not a teacher bashing. No, yeah, it's thing. not. It's not. No. I really want to make that clear. Teachers have the best hearts and are so altruistic. They go out of their way. They do hours and hours and hours of extra work to, to help these children that are behind, knowing most teachers know that these children aren't behind. They're doing what they can to help them learn. And I know many teachers that would love to just turf that grading system yeah. and just teach kids without having to grade. Yes. You know, good teachers know how to teach. Good teachers know when a child is struggling with a concept. So why do we need to grade? We need to grade so that children can get college entry scores. So why are we worrying about that in prep and kindergarten and year one and two? It's, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if I could change the education system, it would be get rid of grading. Just get rid of it. Get, you know, we can do portfolios for university, but it makes it harder on universities. And, you know, they're a business. I was going to bring that up. It's, uh, I think it's all wrapped up in, in, in a system that, um, you mm-hmm. know, is a, is a cash, is a cash yeah. business. 
Absolutely. Although it's, edu- they, it's education, but all it is is a business. And these are two people who have degrees and spend money on school. Yeah. And I can say yeah. that. That's what it yeah. is. And Absolutely. That, that book that you mentioned earlier, Free to Learn, mm. um, by Peter Gray, I thought that was really um, interesting in there, how he just kind of went through that whole process of, of the system and what it's really set up for. Mm. And the biggest thing I took out of that was that from a young age, parents have been kind of brainwashed to think <laughs> that they have to build this resume for their kids mm. through their whole well, life. They won't like, succeed. Yes. Yeah. So yeah ha- this, you're going to do this because it's going to go on your resume. You, you, you know, you're going to have to g- take these classes because it goes on your resume. And at mm. what point are you doing anything that you actually enjoy and that you want to use in your future to be happy? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah it's interesting. And I think uh, on with that is if it was truly about education and holistic health of, of our countries, then education would be free and you'd be able to choose what was interesting to you rather than having to fork out a huge amount of money to a business that really doesn't care if you pass or fail at college. They really don't. It's You either pay the fee and you pass or thanks, we'll take your money and off you go. Then, what you know, it, the system is not set up for holistic happiness, holistic health of, of, of the human beings. And I think if, if our education system isn't human-centred, why? You know, what are we doing this for? We're setting it. I, I think we worry about setting our children up to fail, but I think we're setting our children up to fail by putting them in a system that isn't focused on their holistic well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's actually something I wanted to bring up. So I wrote down a quote from your, your website that you had, I found it really interesting. So you said, essentially our children are getting weaker, fatter, sicker, clumsier, less resilient, and less imaginative. They're having trouble paying attention in school, experiencing difficulty, controlling emotions, and having trouble safely navigating their environment. Mm. And when I read that, I said, that's exactly, I think, what the problem is with the system we, that kids are in right now. Mm. Uh, I think a big part of the reason all these things exist. And like you said earlier, there's many different reasons, Mm. but I do think that that's a big reason is the system that they're put in from a young age all the way up until their mid twenties, getting out of college where, where, when are you doing something that you enjoy Mm. and that brings you happiness and lets you become imaginative or lets you navigate your environment or lets you make decisions on your own. Then you, re- but they go through this system. They're released into the world and are completely incapable, many, mm. of doing those things. And then they wonder why that they, they wonder why they struggle. Yeah. And I see that I work with a lot of uh, like young adults in my mm-hmm. in my job, and a big part of my job is to prepare them for doing what we do. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the I'm in the military, mm-hmm. and you see them come out at 18, 19 years old and you're like, where have you been living for the last 19 years under a rock? Like they have no idea how to take care of themselves. And it's mind blowing. And and you realize now that we homeschool and we've kind of done research on this and read, it's like, I really think this is a big part of it. Yeah, it is. Um, 
That that quote was by Angela Hanscom, who wrote a really fabulous book called Balanced and Barefoot. So I'd highly recommend that book as well. She's an occupational therapist. Okay. I keep she, hearing about that book, so I will have to. Yeah. So she keeps saying, and I'm sure you definitely see it, is these children that have no core and they can't balance and they can't. We find it at, at forest school that they can't cross a creek this deep without nav- they can't navigate those the creek pebbles or. We have one out of four Australian children here in Australia, in Australia that haven't climbed a tree. You know, I just think it's, it's this cotton wooling again. It's micromanaging and it comes from this place of fear. It's, we have this culture of risk in our societies, which comes from this culture of litigation in our societies, which comes from that capitalist money-making, no one taking responsibility for themselves and their actions. Um, and that puts a fear up us as parents. And it also comes down to, I think, we have less children. So children are very precious in society, whereas not that they weren't always precious, <laughs> let me make that clear, but, um, you know, we overprotect and we cotton wool and we, they're not allowed to do anything. And this is the most supervised generation we've ever had. Something like by the time a child turns 18, I can't remember if it's 95 or 98% of their time will be supervised by an adult in some way, shape or form. So they are the most observed generation. They can't jump without an adult, you know, they can't sneeze without an adult knowing about it. So how are they meant to learn to make those decisions, make their bed (laughs) and um, adult and learn to be an adult before they get out to the real world when we haven't let them and given them that chance in teenagehood? We were watching, what, what was it, that video? With, it was a forest school with the kids. Oh, they, I think they were in Sweden or Denmark. Uh, up the tree? Yes. <laughs> he was like teetering on the tallest branch, like the, the branch was bowing over. <laughs> and I honestly, was, was I was awesome. like, if, they, if this guy is just like chill and calm and this <sighs> kid is pretty comfortable too, and they're that high, I really do need to let go. Of, of my <laughs> hovering parenting moments and Nathan is always trying to keep me in check because I am I'm one of those that like I'm the nervous Nelly I am I'm also a registered nurse and I feel like a lot of it has yes, to do with that because I see definitely. the other side <laughs> so yes. all I all I envision is like what could happen and he's yeah. like you got you need to let them just be and they will learn from it and this is why, again, why I want to read this book and, and just dig deeper into it. Because when you see how many do actually, that, that are safe and like they will mm. be fine in the end. I'm like, okay, I can do this. And then to hear the guy on the video say that, you know, and what was it in the last, how many? And I said, he's been doing that for 15, 20 years. And the, he had to go to the hospital once with a child. And I was like, okay, what was that for waiting for it? He said, a parent ran over the kid's foot with their car. <laughs> Not the kid. <laughs> up in the top of the like <laughs> we It's the same here. So my eldest son has broken, well, fra- slight fractures three times on his arm and the most mundane ways at home. Like, Falling onto carpet from standing in, in, in his bedroom, leaning on a chicken fence and just landing awkwardly and a bike ride. And yet he is, he's that boy up in that tree to the point that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to turn around. <laughs> because, and, you, and they don't get, you know, it's not like they go from never climbing a tree to the top of that tree. And that's, I think, we have, Vicky and I and my husband have always let all of our children, if they are able to do it, then we let them do it and 
you know, sometimes I have stood under the tree and sometimes when they were very little I, I had the back of their, their T-shirt. Um, but now it's very, very rarely that I need to help them get down from anywhere. But I've got nursing friends, Anita, so I completely understand that, you know, you see, you do, like your life experience is very different to my life experience. I don't see the head injuries and I don't see spinal injuries. So I don't have that story in my head. So it is easier for me to step back. But um, I also see the opposite. I think that we often think we're protecting our children by, you know, cotton wooling them, but I've seen the other side of that. And, and it's that, it's that quote. It is that exact quote. And I don't want to tar an entire generation with the same brush as we've always done as we become the older people and we look down on that generation. But I mean, the, the evidence is there scientifically. We, a generation, this generation coming through is more overweight. They're anxious. They've got more depression. Um, they're physically less competent. It's the science is there to back that up. So when we have all these screens and we have children sitting in a classroom for six hours a day, I mean, what do we expect? It's, yeah. Agreed. It's, it's, yeah. It's, we can't enforce children to go and do these things and then expect them to be fit, young, agile human beings. Yes. Mm. As, uh, I just bring this up since we're on the subject. One of the main reasons that I'd say top one or two reasons that when people try to come into the military service and they can't, it's because they are on medication for those things. Mm. Yeah. And I, and you never realized how many were actually having issues and I could not believe it when I stepped into, you know, what I do. Mm. It was was unbelievable. I said, I cannot believe that this, there's this many kids that are this, this sad. Yeah. And it is, it is a sadness. And when I, and this is anecdotal, this is, there's no research behind this. This is, this is me just chatting to the teenagers in my classroom. It was that they felt like they had no control over their life that every decision they in regarding their life was made for them, whether that was by teachers or guidance counsellors helping them with their career, you know, well, you're not good at math, so why would you want to be an engineer? You're not going to ever be an engineer, so go and be a whatever. So that kind of, that level of decision-making taking out of their hands, you know, 50 years ago those teenagers were on job sites and working and apprenticed out and now they're, they're adults. They are these Again, going back to the boys, they are young men, strapping young men in these classrooms and they have to put their hand up to go to the bathroom and then suddenly we release them a year later and they have to work and own a job and vote. But there's no real transition for that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm. Well, obviously it's it's been, it's definitely an issue because I was even, when I was, again, with the research I came across several articles that are stating that um, physicians now are trying to prescribe nature and like outdoor time, like an actual prescription. And there's even, uh, I I found this Park RX America and apparently it's a nonprofit organization and their mission is to improve health and happiness and foster environmental stewardship by prescribing nature. I don't know how big it is yet, I, I think it's just, you know, still in the workings, but I just think that alone is a really awesome initiative to start mm. because it's definitely needed and they're seeing the need. And, and some of the doctors that were being interviewed were saying like, we're trying to make like, if we have to pre- prescribe a medication, 
We will, but then we're going to also prescribe that they spend this much time outdoors every day. And then they even like, will set up like alarms through their text or through email to remind their patients to go outside today and go for this Mm. long and they help them find parks or even if it's in their backyard. But Mm. I mean, I mean, we've come to that point. Isn't that crazy? Well, it is. There's research, a lot of research that I'll have to find it, but essentially if you are in a hospital room and you have no windows versus whether you have a, a green or blue picture on the wall or a nature picture versus a window looking any view. It could be a city view, but any view that you can see blue sky, your overall sense of happiness just progressively leaps and you heal quicker. So as simple as a view in a hospital room can make you heal faster, I just think the science is there now. You know, yeah. and There's doctors in New York now that are prescribing probiotics that the um, the bacteria that they're taking, the probiotic, comes from dirt because we are so clean now and we're not accessing nature enough that doctors are having to prescribe these because we need that soil bacteria in our gut for literally for happiness. It creates this, there's a relationship between the microbiome and this particular bacteria and depression and anxiety. So by preventing our children from playing in the dirt and playing in trees and, and getting muddy, we're actually could be making them anxious and depressed. So get outside. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was sad that there were pediatricians that are prescribing outdoor time. Pediatricians. Yeah. I'm like there are kids that are that deficient in outdoor play that a yeah. doctor is having to tell the parent, like, we need, we need to put this in their life. Yeah. Like, the society um, is just... <laughs> I'm really happy that pediatricians have actually picked that up and are picking nature over a pill. That's actually a really positive yeah, thing. Yeah, I thought it was really cool when I saw yeah, that. Yeah, but you sad know, that organization. Yeah, I think we forget that we're actually not meant to be contained in four walls. It's comfortable. We do like being comfortable, but our brains aren't wired to be overstimulated. They're not wired for light and screens and you know noise and things. We're meant to be out. And I know as soon as I step out into a blue sky and green trees. My whole, my whole demeanour changes. Yeah. So that's what got me through lockdown was being able to, we were still able to exercise and leave the house. So I, don't, I feel for the, the Italians and the Spaniards who, mm. you know, they, weren't, they weren't able to leave their apartments for 45 days with children. Mm. I just think the research that should be done on the well-being of those families, they can't, it can't be good for a child to be locked in a house for 45 days. No, you're virus right. or no virus, it's... No, yeah. I, we, we've, we've mentioned this before and we don't want to go down into uh, the, the COVID rabbit hole, but no, so, yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, it, if anything, that if something comes out of this good, it's brought to light the need for nature and the outdoors mm. because it's the only thing that's left to yeah. do. Yeah. For many people like the restaurants, a lot of restaurants, no one wants to go to restaurants. You can't go to a con- concert. You can't mm. really, no, a lot of people don't want to go shopping. So where we, where we are, the, there's no kayaks, there's no bikes left on the shelves because yeah, <laughs> people are buying all that stuff because they're going outside. Although those places have gotten busier, which we don't mm. like. Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, we get there and it's Back like, to school. It's cr- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Would you please open the schools back up to get these people out of here? <laughs> I want this playground empty again. Thank you. <laughs> It's Monday. Yeah, it's a Monday afternoon. There should be nobody here. Yeah. 
We have to talk. We have to remind ourselves. Okay, we can't be bitter about something no. positive happening. Yes. <laughs> Yes. It was it was really nice seeing so many families out on bikes. It was really, yeah, and I just, and amongst my friends when I was speaking to them, they said the same thing, gardening, walking, exercise, that's what kept them sane during lockdown. So, you know, I think, like you said, if nothing else, it's reiterated the fact that we need nature time and we need exercise. So hopefully we can maintain it when things go back to whatever the new normal is. Yeah. Yeah. We, that's, yeah, we talked about that a lot. So, uh, it's, that's, I think it's good for, there's a lot of kids that were deprived and hope, yeah. hopefully now their, their parents have, uh, realized, um, how important that is for them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. I really wanted to ask this before she went on to something else <laughs> Yeah. So, on your website. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that uh, you said the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are the first inhabitants of your country. Mm-hmm. and the traditional custodians of the land there. Mm-hmm. I, I read that and I love learning about different cultures, but I wanted to ask you, how does that play into mm. what you do or does it? So, yeah, it does. We, we're really mindful and we're trying really hard, really hard, and, we, and we'll never get it right. We'll never be perfect at it, but we're, we're trying um, to try and embed our First Nations perspectives throughout what we do. And that can be as simple as getting a local Indigenous community member to come in, someone from our local mob to come in and just just sit with us, literally just sit with us and chat, but paying them for their time and not expecting, just like I wouldn't expect you to come and run anything or come and sit and chat at my program to, to pay people what they're worth. And, all, and, and more so um, because for many, many, many years here, uh, Aboriginal people have been ripped off, they've been not paid, they've been taken advantage of. So um, we do weaving. When we start our programs, we do an acknowledgement of country, which is essentially acknowledging the fact that the land that we work and play on is owned by uh, and has been cared for by custodians for you know, up to 60,000 years now. And then suddenly we're here caretaking for it and you know the colonial view of caretaking for a place is far different to you know our first nations people they do beautiful fire management they they sowed and they repped and they harvested and they created fishing dams and all sorts of things that have just been wiped out so when we say we're caretaking for the land we're doing some tree planting but we're trying to find out more indigenous knowledge about the trees and the plants and how we can caretake for that as it was rather than how we as white people think that should be because it's so vastly different. But, um, yeah, so with the acknowledgement, we have a bunch of um, songs and games that we can play, but mainly it's just telling the stories and just just being really thankful, I think, as well, and really careful about looking after the space. So we're a leave no trace. We're a mobile service. We pack everything in and we pack everything out because we want to leave that forest exactly how we found it as much as we can but um we had a friend come down brianna she's a local cubby cubby woman she came last week and she when she left she said i just feel really emotional to see a space like this used and filled again with families and children i just think it can be as simple as that it's just being respectful and trying your best to pass on the bush tucker knowledge and the stories and and involving the community again that's so neat yeah Mm. so important 
It is. And look, we're not doing enough. We, I don't think we can ever do enough. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're starting and we're trying and we're building. Those relationships take time. We have, um, a local um, Gubby Gubby man here said it takes three, three cups of tea. You know, don't come in and expect me to just come and work, work at your place. You know, come and get to know me. Come have a yarn over a cuppa and get to know us and build a relationship because that's what we all want and that's how how we build good relationships and reconciliation and tolerance and understanding is through relationships. So I, I really take that on board and I think it's really important in all, all facets of business and life, I think, is it's relationships and getting to, if you know someone well, then you can understand perspectives. Matt, we're actually pretty familiar with that. We Before we, we um, started doing what we do now, we lived out in New Mexico and if you do if you're not familiar with this that area which I'm, I, I wouldn't expect yeah. you to be but uh no, I've been been there yeah oh you have yeah I lived in Colorado in uh, Breckenridge for two seasons oh so you're holding back, 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 hold back secrets <laughs> yeah but I couldn't handle the cold so I had to leave <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay so do you know where yeah. do you know where Taos is yes so we we lived outside of Taos, a ways like oh, out in the wow. national forest, but Magic. working there, uh, the the Taos pueblo, uh, I did I had a lot of dealings with them, and because of the relationship they've had with other mm. people, it took a very very long time yeah. to build that relationship. But when I did, mm. it was it was awesome, and I learned uh, so much from them mm. and uh, being around them, and it was just a uh, really cool culture but it uh, mm. it, it you're right it takes a, it takes a lot to um build that trust which it should yeah and you can understand why because like you said we might go into these areas and these um territories and countries for a year or two but you know they're there for life and they're seeing the cycles and they see how you might care and I might care but our government policies you know actions speak louder than words and our government policies are awful just awful you know we've got third world poverty up in our northern territories and that just nothing is really done about it so you can like you said you can understand the distrust completely of course mm-hmm. yes yeah i know that was kind of off subject but i was really wanted to ask you that um yeah no it's really it, i'm glad that you did it's really important and particularly in this time it's, it's always important but it's made us go back and look at, at with black lives matter is how how are we turning up not just as a business because we don't want that tokenism and we don't want that it's not just, you know, showmanship. How are we as individuals breaking down our own um, prejudices and our own beliefs that we've been raised in a, in a colonial country? So, you know, we have been raised racist in Australia and that's going to be controversial and that's going to push a lot of buttons for Australian listeners but our education system is getting a lot better. But back in the 80s when I grew up in 90s, I had one, I think, one semester of Australian studies. And the first thing we learnt was about Captain Cook taking over Australia, but it wasn't called Invasion Day. It was, you know, discovering Australia. And there was very little on the massacres and the genocide and um, all the policies, the stolen generation and all of those policies after that. So... Yeah, it's really important to acknowledge that we've been brought up in a racist system and that we have to break that down as individuals because it's not happening at policy level, that's for sure here. Well, unfortunately, what they what do they say? Uh, history is written by the victor. Uh, a lot of 
a lot of it gets left out. Yeah, it sure does in our textbooks. Yeah, we're right. writing still. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot has been left out. Um, mm. I'm sorry, Anita. I know you've no, some other... Just to, yes. while we're on it, I know that the the respect of the ancestral knowledge was actually one of the pillars to wild schooling. And you had mentioned mm-hmm. that you incorporate wild schooling into your own homeschooling. So can you, I know you have a whole episode on wild schooling that our listeners can go take a listen to, but can you just briefly explain what wild schooling is? Because I had no idea this was even a thing until I listened to your show. (laughs) Well, it's, it's similar to, it's very similar to forest schooling, but I would say forest schooling is still has that element of teaching, you know, schools would probably incorporate forest schooling into, into their curriculum, but they'd be a little bit more hesitant with wild schooling because it's, it's village-based. It's emer- definitely emergent and child-led. It's um, trying to incorporate ancestral knowledge wherever you can. It's seasonal-based. It's very place-based. So while schools do that to a certain level, and they really do, they do a good job about children learn about their local area and their country and whatnot, it's not seasonal and it's not based on weather and um, seasonal synchronicities. So here when the crow's ash tree flowers, the eels are fat and ready to harvest. And that's knowledge I would never have known if I hadn't learnt that from Jan Damara Cad, who's a local Indigenous artist. So it might not be relevant for me now. I probably wouldn't go hunt an eel, but for <laughs> me now I can see the crow's ash flowering. I'm like, oh, the eels are fat. Yay! <laughs> you know, just yeah. acknowledging that there are these synchronicities and that that's that knowledge that can be passed down or, you know, our, our Indigenous um seasons here it well, not quite here in Queensland there are indigenous seasons but particularly down in the southern states they have six definite seasons sometimes eight depending on where you are wow. so in autumn there's you know the cool wind and then there's the cold wind or it's the wind they have literally have a windy season between autumn and winter and I, I acknowledge that now not acknowledge I understand that and I can sense that now that oh this is that this is the in between the autumn the fall and the winter so yeah, so wild schooling is more of a homeschooling philosophy that you can incorporate within your family, but it's trying to immerse yourself. It's acknowledging that again, we need nature and that we are that we are nature. So we need nature to thrive. So incorporating that into your life, whether that's through homeschooling or just your everyday life, wherever you possibly can. I'm glad you looked that because that was one yeah. that picked up that it didn't have to be for homeschoolers. No, absolutely not. Because, you know, let's be frank, you know, 95% of children are going to be schooled. So how can we wild school them outside of that? It's maybe instead of signing them up for soccer three nights a week, maybe we could do one night a week where we just go down to the local creek or the local park and just play in the trees rather than picking somewhere that might not have a playground and just stepping back and seeing what unfolds because it will unfold and it will be beautiful. It always is. It's more, it's adults. We have trouble sitting in nature because our brains are going, oh, I've got a load of dishes and I should have answered that email and I've got to get ready for this podcast tomorrow. So it's probably de-schooling ourselves and being present, being really present when we're in nature and just enjoying it and soaking it in, letting the children play. It's really simple, isn't it? (laughs) It is just being in nature and letting the children play. It is, yeah. Even today, even today, we went down to the beach, and they, they, uh, the kids caught a jellyfish, a uh, couple types of crabs, a fish, and a mussel. 
And uh, when we came home, our son wanted to research them. So we got online and looked at each one of those things and what they eat and, you know, where they live and all that kind of stuff. And you just realized that they probably learned more doing that than they would sitting in a science class. And, you know, Mm. and uh, it all it took was being outside for a couple hours. I think science in a classroom is probably one of the saddest things to see. <laughs> I'm learning because, this. <laughs> yeah, because God of... God is of, telling us this. I don't want this kind of science. <laughs> yeah, and, and science teachers, they would do excursions every day. If they could be out in the real world, they would choose that every day of the week. But it, it's cost, you know, it's and it's, it's legislation and it's paperwork to get children out on an excursion is really hard as a teacher. Again, this is not teacher bashing. Teachers have it really hard to get a classroom of kids out is really difficult to get approval. But, you know, you've just, you've had your biology class and not just biology, like you're not just learning about mollusks as a whole or jellyfish in its class system. You're learning a place-based seasonal biology. And I think they'll remember that because they'll see that year after year after year. So they'll retain that. And, yes, you can make those links to class, phylum, order, family. You know, you can make those links if they're curious. You know, and it comes up in conversation. You know, oh, jellyfish looks like an octopus. Oh, well, look here. You know, it's that natural inquiry and that natural curiosity. That's, that's what feeds my children. And I think that's another thing separate but on the same line is, you know, um, Gardner's Multiple Intelligences. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. Look look that up. He, he In schools he says there's six. He says they, whoever they are, really spout that there are six multiple intelligences. But Gardner actually wrote that there were eight and the ones that are missing from the ones that are at school, so there's, you know, math, you're really a math intelligent and an English and language intelligence, but they've missed off a, a natural intelligence, so intelligence of the natural world because... We all meet those kids at school that thrive and they, you know, they seem to be able to look at a plant and just recognise it, whereas most of us, you know, really struggled. And there's also um, people and empathy and connection as well. So that's another one that I think is really undervalued because you don't get along very well in life if you can't people, <laughs> you know, if you can't yeah. communicate. <laughs> so I just find it really interesting that there's these multiple intelligences that when you get to school, they just kind of cut off the, I feel, two really important ones. Right. And, yeah, and two categories that children thrive in but don't really neatly fit into a classroom environment. You know, they don't want kids talking and building you know, communicating all day and they don't want children, well, they can't have children exploring nature all day outside of the classroom. So, yeah, sorry, side note there. (laughs) Oh, great. Mm -hmm. That's what we like doing. (laughs) (laughs) So what little bit of advice or encouragement would you give the parent? And I'm asking this because I've seen it posted many times. The parent that is saying, my child does not want to go outside because they said it's too boring. There's nothing to do. And then they start asking what, you know, what toys do you give your kids to play outside? Which, you know, we, I myself was thinking, and I had responded, you know, we don't really give them toys to go play outside. They've got whatever's in the house and the garage out in nature. And it's Mm -hmm. theirs to just choose from because, you know, really it's up to them. That's what we want them to do. Mm -hmm. 
but for those who, who really don't even know like the first step, because there are parents that are just like, they don't want to go outside. Well, how would yeah. you encourage them to, to really take that step? Because I think we all know that really, if a child, if you give them a chance, they are yeah. going to get lost in nature. Mm-hmm. I've probably only had one or two children out of probably nearly 10,000 that have come through our programs now say, I'd really rather my screen than be here. That's pretty good odds, two out of 10,000. <laughs> Most yeah. of them, when they get down, they say, this is the best day ever. Because... <laughs> but it, part of that is us. Part of that is us saying, you can do what you want here as long as you're safe and you're kind. So, and, you know, we set, we have rules and boundaries, but essentially our answer is yes, as long as you're safe and as long as you're kind. Mm-hmm. And safety means different things for people. So, um it would be, I would start really slowly. So playgrounds first, just start, start with a playground, at least you're outdoors or start at a water park or start somewhere that's safe. Because a lot of what children say when they're saying they're bored, a lot of that is actually fear. And it's also, they just have no idea. We're so urbanized now that, you know, we've got all these images coming at us from screens and billboards and phones that that is the new, that's normal to them. So walking into a forest is really foreign and can be quite daunting and they literally don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I would take some toys down to start with, you know, magnifying glasses, bug catchers. Our children will run with butterfly nets for three hours straight, you know, just <laughs> chasing whatever they can find with butterfly nets. Um, we take a mud kitchen down to the creek. So just whatever's, like you said, whatever's in the house, pots and pans and cups mm-hmm. and uh, pasta sieves and colanders and things. Um, and then from there, just slowly extracting that out. But the biggest thing is getting those parents out. And the only way you'll get parents out is if they're comfortable. So buying rain gear, buying an umbrella, um, taking neck coolers with ice or cool drinks or whatever it is that's going to make the adult comfortable enough to sit down for more than half an hour because children will take half an hour, some of the younger ones, to even leave your lap. Um, and going back to maybe the same place regularly. So picking a spot that you would like to make your family space and make it close and accessible. It can be a, you know, a, a back lot in, in a suburban area. That's fine. But, you know, every Sunday we are going to spend three hours here no matter what. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you bring a book. I don't care if you bring toys for the first few weeks, but it's going to be our family tradition. And, and speaking it up like that, it's going to be a great new family tradition. We're going to go down, like rain, hail or shine, and we're just going to do it um, and see how you go from there. But it's parents. It's, if you get the parents out, the children will work it out eventually. Agreed. Snacks. Lots of snacks. <laughs> Lots of snacks. <laughs> yes. Definitely. We don't go anywhere without water and snacks. <laughs> no. And, it's, and actually, I have a tub of clothes in the back of my car. So I've got towels, spare clothes, a first aid kit, and rain jackets and I actually have rain pants because I really don't like having a wet bottom so <laughs> I, I, I take rain pants because it doesn't matter what kind of picnic blanket you have you end up accidentally sitting on a wet log and mm-hmm. I get grumpy so if I put my rain pants on happy mum happy children <laughs> this is so true because even my own family sometimes will be like well I don't when we sit you know because they're in Florida and we're in Ohio mm. They're seeing all of our pictures and like we're out adventuring every day and the weather is very different. I'll give them that. Mm. But it's usually like, I don't want to go out in the heat. It is too hot. There's mosquitoes. So you're right. It is always, you got to break through that parent first. Yeah. 
It is, yeah. and, and which is really difficult because, you know, as parents we make our children eat, eat their vegetables, we, we'll sign them up to soccer, we'll make sure they're getting good grades, but how many of us as parents are getting uncomfortable for the benefit of our children to get nature? Because that's, I don't want to load, you know, we're overburdened as parents, like with working full time and everything that comes with society these days. But nature is one that we often forget and it's actually will remedy a lot of the other parenting issues that we have, you know, behaviour, illness, you know, physical ailments. If we get children outdoors more often, we're actually going to help ourselves and our children in the, in the long run. Yeah. And it raises independent players. The biggest complaint that we get from parents is, oh, my child doesn't know how to play by themselves. It's like take them outside. <laughs> give, them, give them their snacks and water and give them 20 minutes and then they'll be gone. That's our remedy. Yeah. Every time. We're all, we're all going outside. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. And you add water. Restlessness, fighting, yeah. anything. Out. We're going out. <laughs> <laughs> and those really bad days, I add water. If, I, if I'm having one of those, tear my hair out. Why did I have children? What is this parent? <laughs> what is this parenting gig? Then, you know, I put a hose in a bucket or just a bucket of water and I throw some toys in or I turn the shower on and I just go, I think you need a shower. <laughs> I know you had one an hour ago. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> to try that one. That's, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Just real quick, you guys with your your wildlings. Mm-hmm. You you don't just do the forest school, but you also help out the community, right? You go. Yeah. Can you just you know briefly tell our listeners what you have been doing? as far as the community goes as well so do you mean the types of programs that we run yeah like for the school staff and yeah so like like we said earlier I start we started with a nature play group and then the children started growing up and then we well we'll start a forest kindy great and then the parents of our forest kindy said well I've got children at school that would love to come do you run a holiday program so we started a holiday program but now we're getting because of the nature of what we do and if you had have asked us three years ago if we would become children's rights advocates, I would have just laughed because as much as I'm okay getting up in front of a classroom of children, getting up in front of my peers was really intimidating for me. Um, but through my work and finding how well children learn when they have that autonomy and that freedom to choose what they learn, um, we've, we've become these children's rights advocates. And it resonates with teachers because teachers see it too and teachers got into teaching because they love kids and they want to help kids. So um, we have a lot of what we do is at work in early childcare centres and kindergartens. So um, we teach kindergartens how to teach their kids how to fire strike and use whittling knives and cubbies and things. So what we're now seeing is these parents that have had their children in bush kindies are now going, well, my child was allowed to light a fire, whittle with a pocket knife, build a raft and float out in the water at kindergarten, why can't they do that at school? Mm-hmm. They're older and they're more mature and they're more responsible now. My three-year-old can do it, but my nine-year-old can't. There's, there's a disparity here. So now we're getting um, queries from teachers and schools and particularly post-COVID, an outdoor classroom is the safest classroom in this climate. So we're trying to help um, start, uh, schools set up their nature spaces and we're trying to help them set up their outdoor classrooms but linking that back to the curriculum, which isn't, I'll be honest, it's not my favourite thing to do is linking things back to the curriculum. But the beauty of Forest School is that 
everything links back to the curriculum. It's so easy to map it backwards or, or map it and create your assessment around your outdoor classroom. So, yeah, we do a bit of guest speaking and um, a few grants and things with local communities. We run events, sometimes free events, if we can get some local council grants and and some work with some disengaged youth as well, which is really, really rewarding. When you see those children, again, teenagers walking in with a cigarette and a, a Red Bull can in their hand, you go, oh, <laughs> this is going to be an interesting day. And, you know, the one sticks out in my mind where um, it was bucketing down with rain and this child that had walked in, you know, drinking his Red Bull and swearing was the one that, he was able and capable. He, might, he wasn't thriving in traditional school, but here he was the hero. He set up the camp. He lit the fire for the girls. He um, was whittling spears and things, and he was able to show that he was a competent and able man, young man. So enabling teachers to see students in a different light as well, I think, because we are so often pigeonhole these children because we only see them in that one context day in and day out. We don't see them outside of the classroom. And they're completely different human beings often, those children that we may have, um, those interesting children. <laughs> I'll turn that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I, I thought that we should share that because that's really neat what you guys are doing. And then thank you so much with, again, you're homeschoolers, but you're doing this in a community of actual schools. So mm. because you're helping tie that connection, even if they have to be in school, there's still ways to bring this philosophy into their lives, which I thought was... Yeah. Well, that's the same. You've nailed out. And the whole aim of our business is to make nature play accessible from birth through to adulthood. So, and there just seems to be this gap at school. Our childcare centres here in Queensland are doing a great job. A lot of them have got bush kindies or they're doing more excursions just in the last couple of years, but it, it stops at school. So there's just starting to see the wheels in motion now of... of that changing so that's our aim is to become redundant as workshop providers so that one day college offers teachers an outdoor learning unit that's one of the subjects that they take so that teachers feel confident and, and competent to take a classroom of children outdoors which mm-hmm. you would think we would but you ask most teachers and a lot of them wouldn't feel more wouldn't feel comfortable unless they're already a PE teacher um, they wouldn't feel comfortable taking a classroom outdoors unless they're just reading to them, which is better than nothing. But we just need a little bit more education. Well, we know you're trying to get to the beach and we don't, <laughs> we don't want to stop you from doing that. But and you're uh, trying to get to bed, you poor thing. What time is it there? It must be late now. Yeah, it's 8.30. Yeah. <laughs> then it's time to start getting the little ones to that sleep mode. Yes. Well, where, uh, where can people find you? You can find us on Facebook or Instagram if you just search for Wildlings Forest School, we pop up. And on our website, we're on LinkedIn and we've just started a YouTube channel, which is, oh, look, it's a work in progress. And we also have our own podcast, Raising Wildlings, which is about homeschooling and unschooling, but more about um, getting children outdoors in nature and forest school. Awesome. Well, we used your YouTube channel to make the bows and arrows the other day, just so you know, and it was they, awesome. We had a blast. They looked really good. They worked really well, huh? <laughs> they did. That was dangerous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they worked risky. really well. Risky play at its finest. Yes. It was, it was, it was a, we had a blast. But uh, thank you so much. You guys enjoy the beach, and it was a, a blast talking to you. Thank you. Yes, you too. Thanks so much. 
Thank All right, you. Nikki, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Homeschool Project Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email. And as always, remember, explore the world and all it has to offer, and you will never be bored again.